Yikes. <laughs> I think we should institute uh, something that says we have to show the same exuberance here. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we are going to uh, be dealing today with verses 26, 27, and 28, and uh, you'll notice we have covered those uh, briefly in uh, going by them, but uh, today we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about redefining man. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we worship you this morning. We pause in our week and in our day to acknowledge that you are our creator. And we read about that in this very chapter. We read about how you have designed us, how you have fashioned us, what you made us to be and what you made us to do. And we worship you. And Father, we ask that even in this time as we have your word open and as we talk about what exactly we are, we ask that you would be at work during this time, that your spirit would minister to us from your word even this morning. And as we move through our service on towards the Lord's table, at the end we, we remember Christ and we remember the direction that this story points. We remember the one in whom is our hope and our delight. We pray that your spirit would be at work. We pray that your son would be glorified. We pray that you would bless us even in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. When uh, Stephanie and I lived in Russia back in 1996 and 97, we uh, lived in this particular apartment that was already furnished. And, uh, you know, that's good because we wouldn't have known where to go to get, you know, furniture and we probably couldn't have afforded it if we, uh, if we did know where to find it. But it was already furnished and it was um, somewhat modestly furnished, but some of the things we didn't quite understand what they were for. And um, so being young, I mean, we were very young. I was 22, I think, and, and Stephanie turned 20 while we were there, 21 while we were there. And so we were pretty young and had been married a year and we didn't, uh, didn't know a whole lot. And we showed that a little bit in our 
uh, some of our decisions. For example, the average Russian apartment, uh, at least in that time, that was back in the 90s, so that was a different era than now, <clears throat> was pretty drab. Colors are pretty drab and big blank walls, and it was all these high-rise apartment buildings that were made out of concrete, and they all looked just the same. And so if you, you, know, if you were going to someone's house, you really needed to know their number because every building looked the same, and you weren't going to find them otherwise, right? And so, uh, but these houses were, were relatively um, uh, drab inside. And so what Russians do, or they did at the time anyway, they have a tradition of having these wall hangings that are really... They look like rugs to us, but they go up on the wall. And so that way you could decorate like a whole wall, you know, just by putting the rug up on the wall. And so, well, that was handy, and, and it added a little bit of difference between this apartment and that apartment, etc. But uh, during the wintertime, Stephanie and I noticed that our feet were cold in our apartment, hardwood floors. And so we took the rug off the wall and put it on the floor, right? I mean, it makes sense, you know, and now our feet were warm, and, and we thought it was a pretty good solution. And every Russian who came over just had the strangest looks on their face as they were walking on this rug that they knew very well went on that wall. <laughs> but we didn't know, and so we used it how we thought best. And uh, that wasn't the worst example of such things, but that's the one that's easier to share in, in this kind of context. But we have, we have a situation where modern man like we had uh, taken something that was meant to be used in a particular way, but we didn't know how it was meant to be used, and so we used it in a different way that looked very strange to people who knew what was really going on. So likewise, in our modern era, modern man misunderstands his own use, misunderstands the purpose for which he was created, and thus the way he treats himself, the way he thinks about himself, the way he thinks about uh, mankind in general, doesn't really line up with the original design. And so much like uh, the Russians who came to visit us who would look askance at the rug on the floor and other odd things we were doing, so if we had a biblical perspective on mankind and what he's made for, what his purpose is, what his design really is, when we look out into the world and we think, that's a little odd, right? And I think in our day and age, we look askance at the world a little bit, at how mankind is uh, treating himself and thinking about what it means to be human. And so our passage today, of course, is uh, just a couple of verses talking about the origins of humanity. And, and as we look at this passage, we're going to deal with several different lies about mankind. And we're going to work through them uh, kind of uh, lie by lie and see um, how they can be corrected. Lies that exist in our day and age, uh, lies, misunderstandings about humanity that are cleared up by looking at this passage. And so we're going to work our way through, and we're going to see, first of all, there in verse 26, that man is created with identity and purpose. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So I want to notice, first of all, we'll pause in our reading, but I want to notice once again the plural that's used here. Let us, says God. And I don't think this is explicitly an argument for the Trinity from this verse, but it certainly opens the door for the notion that there is, there is unity within God, but there is somehow plurality also. That there is one God, and yet we will learn as Scripture goes on that He exists eternally as three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Well, all of that is not spelled out just yet, but we have this hint when God says, let us do this thing. He's speaking in that kind of plural. So let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so we come right off the bat to the first lie that we want to address. And that first lie is we are animals. The lie is we are animals. You know, if you uh, grow up uh, and you're, you, know, you believe in naturalistic evolution and materialism and all that stuff, uh, kind of the way I grew up, uh, not really thinking a whole lot about it, but this is certainly what I was taught in my biology class was that one form of organism developed into another form of organism and, and et cetera. And so basically we're just, you know, apes who happen to walk on two feet. We're just like the animals, but we are a little bit uh, less hairy than they are. And we have a different way of communicating, right? That we're basically animals. And if you take that to its logical conclusions, that causes real problems then about the value of man. If he's just an animal, a hairless, you know, bipedal uh, ape, well, is there, what's the relative value between us and a gorilla? Right? It raises those kinds of questions. And so you see it very clearly in uh, the notion of evolution. But I think even, even Christians and Christians who don't, don't buy into that evolution thing and, and realize we are created beings, yet if we see too close a connection here uh, between us and the animal world, if, if we believe that we are animals, then, then we, we elevate those natural physical urges that we have. Like, like sexual urges, for example, or other, other things that are, that are biological needs. Right? And, and that's just part of what it means to be, to be animals. It's part of, to, to be in the animal kingdom means to have these kinds of urges. And, and so, of course, they're, you know, they're sort of natural and we just need to find the right way to express them, etc. Right? And so, we, we elevate those, those natural physical urges to a place of need. And so now our existence, since we're just animals, I mean, we're, we're, we're created and all that stuff. If we're Christians and, and, and we believe that, we're, we're created, but yet we're such a close connection to the animal kingdom means that these, these are needs that need to be met. These are urges that we should follow in some way. We just need to control them in the right way. Right? So the lie number one that we want to see here is we are animals. But look at what Look at what God said. Let us make man in our image. In our image, says God. That when he is creating man, he, he's already created all of the rest of the physical world and he's created space and he's created the earth and the seas and all that. And he's populated them with all that stuff. And then finally he gets to uh, day six and, and, uh, and he concludes by now making something in his image. And so there's a distinction here between us and the animals. There is a hard line drawn between us and the animals. And so we are made in his image. Not just uh, hairless apes who happen to walk upright. What does it mean that we're created in God's image? 
Well, I've, you know, I read a lot about this, and a lot of people have different opinions, and, and sometimes they state their opinions very forcefully and don't have a whole lot behind them. And some will say, uh, you know, that it has to do with our intellect, you know, our intellectual capacity. Well, okay, maybe, right? Uh, others say that it has to do with, uh, you know, our ability to relate and the human the relationships that we kind of have, which is different. Uh, our relatability, and particularly our relatability to God, is an aspect of our being created in His image, that we relate to God in a way different from uh, the way uh, an animal relates to God, right? Where there's something unique about us. Well, I don't, I don't know exactly how to narrow it down, and I think, I think it's probably a mistake to drill too far into it because the Bible is not real explicit about the nature of what it means to be created in God's image. But it's something said of us, it's something said on day six about humanity that's not said about the hairy apes. It's said about us. There's something that distinguishes us from the rest of creation, something unique. And, and I think uh, as we look at the idea of image through, through creation, it's, it's hard to nail down exactly what it is, but I think it, I think it has something to do with our ability to rightly relate to God in intimate relationship. I think that's where it is, somewhere resident within that. And that might include intellect, and that might in, include, you know, other, other aspects of our, of our makeup. But I think the heart of it is our ability to relate uniquely, differently from even the way angels relate to God. There's a capacity that mankind has. And... I, I think that's what's going on with the image here. I, I hold that with a relatively loose hand because I don't, I don't see, you know, uh, a whole lot of argument or explanation from Scripture about what it means, but that's my best shot. But the, the point is here, let us make man in our image. They are different from the animals. They are not animals. Now, I know we have hearts. I know we have similar uh, structure and things in common with animals. Of course, I don't deny any of that, but we are not at base animals. Yes, we are in the animal kingdom. But we are not animals. We are created in God's image. We bear a striking resemblance to animals. And a whole lot of things function the same in us as they do in animals and, and all kind of stuff like that. But the point is, though we have physical uh, similarities and even other similarities between us and the animal kingdom, yet there is something unique. We've been created in God's image. So that's the first lie. We are animals. No, we're in God's image. Secondly, the second lie is that we are little gods. So this is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, right? The one said, ah, oh, we're just animals, right? We're slaves to, uh, to our urges. We're, we're just like, you know, we're of no more value uh, than the apes, etc. The second is exactly the opposite. It said, no, actually, we are little gods. And in the world, you see this in the sense that man is the measure of all things. That, uh, that uh, man and what he can accomplish is, is without boundary, we can do anything. We can reshape reality. Right? And you see, you see that in the non-Christian world that man is the center of all things. He's the definition of good. He's the definition of, of all of these other things. And, and so it inflates the value of man. And in Christianity, we, we, don't, we don't see that we're little gods, except there are branches of the so-called Christianity, by the way, that, that espouse what's called a little god theology. 
This is in the, 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 the prosperity gospel, uh, the idea that you have creative words that you can speak like God had creative words that He's spoken. If you speak the right words with faith, you can create things like wealth or like health where there was illness. or, or what it, It's similar. It's, it's, a, it's an inflation of what man is like. That we're basically little gods. We're, we're like God walking around this earth. Well, that's, that's, a, that's an inflation. And what do we see in Scripture here? He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. After our likeness. I've, I've often wondered, maybe you've wondered too, why both words are used there, image and likeness. And why are they used together? That doesn't happen often. Actually, there are other places in Scripture where the two words can be used interchangeably. There's, there's synonyms in those contexts. They can fit into each other and, and it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not pointing up any difference. But when the two are used together, it seems like the first one, the image of God, is identifying us with God as opposed to creation, as opposed to uh, the, the animal kingdom. There's something unique and divine about us, as it were. There's something special that identifies us with God. We're created in His image. That's a special thing. But it's only an image that is a likeness. Meaning, there is a difference between us and Him. We are like Him in some ways, which means we are different. We are categorically of another kind. And so when both of these words are used together, I think it's arguing for the fact that man is so much more than the animal kingdom. And he's so much less than the Creator God. He has this unique position. This unique relationship to God. This unique relationship to creation. And I think that's what is being pointed out by the fact that we, uh, we are made in His image and after His likeness. There is similarity and there is difference between us and Him. Third lie. And I've talked about this already, but that we should serve the environment. That we exist to serve the environment. And in some uh, extreme cases, this would, this would lead certain environmentalist types to, to, to see that actually mankind needs to not only decrease in his footprint in the world, and not only decrease numerically about the world, meaning we need to shrink the population, but it would be best for the planet if we were just gone. Right? Because the planet, the environment is what is important, and we are the problem to the environment. Right? Now, I'm not, I'm not denying uh, environmental catastrophes that have gone on. I'm not, I'm not denying our impact on the environment and our, our need to uh, serve in, in, in such a way as stewards of the environment that we take care of it. Like a farmer takes care of his field where he does cut the crops. And he does make changes, but it brings growth and life to his field, uh, to his property, rather than destruction. So I'm not denying that. Uh, but I think there are, uh, there are notions that see the planet as being far more valuable than humanity. And that's a problem in the logic of this passage when he creates man and he says, let them have dominion over all of those things. Mankind is to have dominion over the animals, over the plants, over the planet. Over this world, we have dominion. We've been put in a unique position a unique place where we steward it. We take care of it, but it is meant and it is created to serve us. It meets our needs. It feeds us. 
It, it provides a home for us. It provides raw materials and resources that we use to better life, to come up with medicines that heal people, to find ways to make the de- desert blossom, to, to tame the oceans, to all of that stuff that we get to use this environment for our good in a responsible and in a good way. But I think that's very different than the environmentalist notion that, uh, that we exist to serve the environment and we should not get in the way of the environment. That's, that's backwards from the thinking here. We have been given dominion and this creation serves us. We don't want to pillage it. We don't want to plunder it. We don't want to destroy it. We're not seeking to harm it but we are seeking to utilize it and conserve it in such a way that it serves us. So, so much for man's uh, uh, created identity and purpose. We could dig more into that, but I think these three lies are crucial for us to see at this point. We move on to verse 27, where we're going to seek to clear up some gender confusion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here we have the first little poem in the Bible. And the the way it's ordered there, the way it's uh, put together, there's a a great emphasis clearly, even if you just look at at, uh, that verse, that God is the one creating. This is God's doing. This is God's design. He has put this together. God created, God created, God created. And this, this answers Lie number four, which says that life is meaningless. Life is basically meaningless. And this isn't just a, a psychological thing where uh, we might think for a while that, oh, I don't, you know, uh, I don't have a lot of meaning in my life, right? Well, that's, that's a legitimate concern. But, but there are those, you know, nihilists who believe that there really is no meaning. And if you find some meaning in life, it was just something you made up. And you decided to follow it because it gave you purpose, because life would be unbearable without some kind of purpose. So just come up with one, right? This answers, I think, the notion that life is meaningless. So you've got nihilism for the non-Christian. But even, even within the church, there's a notion that we define our own purpose. That we, uh, that since there is no ultimate meaning, we're just here for a while. And, and find your thing and do your thing so that you can have some purpose some meaning in this life. And that's something we define for ourselves. Well, I I understand that not everyone is called to the same thing. I understand that some people are going to work in varied fields. They're going to have an entirely different life and focus of their life on this structure. But if we remind ourselves and we remember that we exist because God created us, that tells us what our purpose is. That points us back to Him as being our purpose. Whatever we do in this world, whatever, you know, if, uh, whatever uh, profession we follow, whatever we might do in this world, yet it's ultimately for Him, for His purpose. And so we, we read in theology that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our chief end is directed towards Him. Yeah, we decide what we're going to do in this world, but ultimately what we do in this world is for the purpose of serving Him, for the purpose of relating to God. And so the first, uh, the fourth lie here is that life is meaningless. No, we have meaning because God has created us. 
We're not an accident. We didn't just come about. We didn't arise out of the pond or God created us. Secondly, or the fifth, fifth lie, the second one in this category, is that gender is a social construct. But you'll hear that today. That's a big deal, right? In, in, uh, if, you, if you read the news, if you read about what's going on in this world, uh, you will see a rising notion that there are no essential distinctions between the sexes. No essential distinctions. Yes, some have, they're born with male parts and some are born with female parts, but there really is no distinction. And you see this, uh, of course, in the, in the non-Christian world with, uh, with very much of the LGBT movement. I know the letters go on, but I can't even remember them all. But, but this, this question about us and gender and, and what it means and, and where is it defined, and, and really it's, it's a result of the culture we live in. And so I was born in this country and 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 I was born, you know, uh, with, with male parts. And so my culture tells me what it means to be a man, what it means to be someone born with male parts. And so my culture determines for me what I'm going to be, my gender. Right? It's a social construct. And that's what people are wrestling with, this, this idea that, that, you know, maybe... Maybe there are some differences and distinctions between what it means to be a man in the United States versus what it means to be a man in Pacific Island, for example. And so, isn't it just a social construct? And so if it's a social construct, can't I throw it off? Well, we see it in the, in the Christian world also. Maybe not so much with the same, though I know there are corners of the church where LGBT uh, issues are... Um, you know, much closer to home, but, but I see, uh, typically I see evidence of this in the Christian world in a hesitancy to call some of those things within LGBT, LGBT etc., a hesitancy to call them sin. Because we've, we, we sort of recognize that, yeah, maybe there's a difference between a man, you know, what a man looks like in the United States versus what a man looks like in this, you know, hypothetical island uh, nation in the middle of the Pacific. And so since that's the case, you know, what it means to be a man is kind of determined by where you grew up. And so can't you change it? Well, you know, we're kind of a little soft on those ideas as Christians sometimes. And, and we think, well, you know, I don't know. What about dress and what about appearance and what about, you know, relationships? And, and, and sometimes within the church, there becomes a weakness on these kinds of issues. But the answer from this passage here, when God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So gender is not a social construct. Now, there are social influences on what it means to dress like a man here versus what it means to dress like a man in the Middle East. Okay, that's not a big deal. There are no essential differences between what it means to be a man in the United States versus what it means to be a man in the Middle East or a Pacific Island. That there, are, there are some things that are essentially here that God on purpose created male and he created female. He did that on purpose. He didn't just throw it out and say, oh, by the way, here are a couple of options for you. You can go left or you can go right. You can, you can choose to be a male, you can choose to be a female. It's up to you. I've, I've given you a couple of possible paths. Good luck with that. Or do your best. Now, he's given 
specific distinctions about humanity. There are male men and there are female men, female mankind. There are women and God made them and that's the origin of them. And so a lot of the confusion that is in this world is cleared up in this verse. He created them male and female and connected with that lie number six, gender is subjectively determined. So the one says gender is socially determined. And the other one says gender is subjectively determined. I decide for myself. I'm, I, I feel more like this, and so that means I, I get to be that. No, he's saying God, who created all things, in his, his own plan, with his, uh, with his determination of what ought to be, he made male and he made female. And Adam and Eve didn't have a say in the matter. It was decreed for them by God. And it's the same for us. And so we can, uh, we can think about gender in entirely different ways that, that, that God has assigned me a gender when I was conceived, and here it is. And I may like it, I may not like it, I may be confused about it, but I need to see right here that God is the one who gave me this. He did so with a purpose. He did so with a plan. And this is the case for all of humanity. And so... The sixth lie is that gender is subjectively determined. No, it was given to you by God. It was God's determination. Look at verse 28. We want to look at the last couple of lies here about childbearing and our purpose. We're going to deal with just these last two lies. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, this, this brings us to lie number seven. That children hinder our purposes. Having children hinders our purposes. Or in other words, childbearing is purely a matter of personal choice. Look at the way he said this. He created them. He created them in his image. He created them male and female. Verse 28. And he blessed them. And he said to them. So here's a command. First command of scripture. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. Right? Now these are not numerous commands. This is, this is one command and the steps to accomplish it being given within the command itself. The ultimate command is have dominion, exercise dominion. Well, okay, Lord, how are we supposed to do that? How can, how can we too, Adam and Eve created place in the garden, this, this, this place, how are they going to have dominion over the whole world? I have no idea how big the garden was, but it probably wasn't the whole world. And if you've got two people whose job it is to have dominion over everything, and there are animals on the opposite side of the world you're supposed to have dominion over. That's going to be a while for you to walk and get there. Meanwhile, you've not been in dominion over other things. How is this supposed to be accomplished? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. Adam and Eve, as you bear children, that's why you've been made male and female, as you bear children, those, those children are other images of God, other image bearers of God in this world, whose job it is also to marry and bear children 
and spread out across the world and fill the whole earth and subdue it. Everywhere mankind goes, he subdues his place. He builds a house. He figures out how to irrigate his land. He cuts down the tree that's in his way. He builds a road to get there. He subdues that land. If there are you know, creatures that would come and, and, uh, and endanger his children or his livestock, he kills them or he finds some other way to deal with. He, he's subduing creation and by those means ruling over creation. And so right here in this very first command, we have built into God's design of male and female and his, his goal of them having dominion over creation. He says, oh, by the way, male and female, you're supposed to have kids. Multiply. Be fruitful, multiply, and by those means fill the earth. So there's something a whole lot more behind having children than just our desires. This isn't the world we grew up in. We we grew up in a world that that, uh, has, in as much as it values marriage, which is becoming less and less, but in as much as it values marriage, it's more about what I can get out of it. It's more about the, the joy of my relationship with my spouse and less about... God's ultimate purposes, what he's accomplishing in this world, which has to do with us laying down our lives by having children. And so we give up our lives for our children and we, and we have them. And by those means, we accomplish God's purposes. So there's a whole lot more to say on that topic. But, but I will note that throughout the rest of Genesis, you're going to see a consistent theme about the importance of children to the line of God's people. And you'll see a comparison between the the line of of people in rebellion against God. They had a son and they died. They had a son and they died. They had a son and they died. And God's people, and they had a son and they bore other sons and daughters and they died. They had a son and they bore other sons and daughters. There's always a uh, a multitude of children on the one side. So part of the Genesis argument is the value of mankind, that he's not in the way. He needs to be gotten out of the way of this world. But it's the multiplication that is a part of God's plan for subduing and ruling over this world. And I think if we thought about that differently uh, with, with regard to our own uh, purposes and our own children, etc., I think that would cause us to think a little bit differently. And I think Genesis would challenge us in that way. That's line number seven. Line number eight, and this is the kicker. Line number eight is we can't know what God says. We can't know what God says. You see this, uh, you see this in the in the world, in the in amongst uh, those who are not Christians. That you know, man can talk about his religious experiences. You know, this is my experience with religion. This is my experience with God, and he can talk about it that way. But we never actually hear from God. God speaking down to us, even even for those who would admit uh, non Christians who would admit that there is a God, he can't speak to us. He's so different from us. We can never really know what he wants. Likewise, uh, within Christianity, there's a similar problem. There's such a great distinction between us and God that we, you know, we might hear what God says, but it's kind of fuzzy. It's like Charlie Brown listening to his teacher. Well, I know she's talking. <laughs> I don't know what she's saying, right? We, we, we know God is trying to communicate with us, but there's such a, a difference, such a, 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 a distinction and a gulf between us and him that we can never really hear clearly. We might get words and bits and pieces and ideas and, and you have your notion of what that meant and I have my notion of what that meant, but who's to say? And so we have to hold everything with a little bit of a loose hand. 
I want to notice from this verse that God spoke to them. God spoke to them. That's different than the other animals and whatnot. When God would speak and say, let there be, and, then, and even, even when he blessed them saying, so he was speaking, but not to them. It's not until you get to verse 28 that you see God blessed them and God said to them, Almighty God, who is infinite and is, and is other from us, the Creator speaks to His creatures. But only here. He didn't talk to the animals. He didn't talk to the hills. But He speaks to us. God is able to communicate to us. Calvin says he speaks with a, with a lisp when he does so, like, a, like baby talk. Like when you're talking to your little child and you're trying to make yourself understood and you might use baby talk. God speaks to us that way, but God communicates. And he communicates on purpose and he does so clearly. God spoke to them. And so the lie is that we can't know what God says. And the truth is God can speak. And he does so in his word. And he does so in a way that we can understand. He does so in a way that we can interpret, that we can believe, we can know what God says. God doesn't speak on every topic, but he speaks on all of the essential topics right here in his word. And we can know what it is and we can value it and not have to be uh, like those who think, well, you know, that's just your impression of, of your relationship with God and these your observations. And the goal is to get to what God has actually said. And so that's the last lies. We can't know what God says. And so this passage is pointing us back to what man is created to be, what he is created to do. You and I know, because we've read beyond just these verses, we know that in just a couple of chapters there's going to there's gonna be a problem that gums up the whole works. That sin enters the picture, and though man is created in a certain way, and he's to function in a certain way, and he's been given a particular responsibility, yet sin enters in. And they have problems from the get-go. And things are warped and things are bent and they're not meeting uh, their requirements. And so from that very uh, early uh, part there in Genesis chapter 3 where we see the, the serpent come in and, and, he, and he deceives the woman and she takes the fruit and then she gives it to her husband who's right there with her and they eat it and sin enters the picture and immediately they're, they're aware of shame because they're naked. They're aware that things aren't the way they ought to be. They were naked five minutes ago and it didn't bother them. That wasn't the issue. Now they're ashamed of what they are. Now it's been revealed their, their guilt. And so they're ashamed and sin has entered the picture. And, and we're going to see all the way through the rest of Scripture and right up to our day and age, the evidence and the, the fact of sin in our lives. It, it bends and it warps things and it causes people not to function the way God has designed them to function. It causes the world to, to function in some different way than the way God designed it. There's, there's warping, there's, there's sin, and there's punishment. God had told Adam, the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. Well, sin enters the picture and death comes with it. And I praise God that he didn't just judge mankind right there and move on. Nor did he say, all of your uh, offspring forever and ever are going to bear that curse. 
and judgment's going to come and death's going to come to them too. That wasn't the end of the story. That's when he declared that there would be one who is the seed of the woman, who will be at enmity with the serpent. And that there would come a conflict between the seed of the woman and that serpent. And the seed of the woman would, would bruise his heel by stomping on the head of that serpent. Thereby crushing him, thereby defeating him. So that you and I, who are not entirely different than Adam and Eve, and our choice to sin and the personal guilt that we bear, and the punishment that comes along with it, we're pointed to this same hope that God pointed Adam and Eve to, that there, there would be one who, who would come, who would, who would do mortal conflict with the serpent, crushing his head, winning victory, so that there would be redemption for all of those who will place their faith in him. And so that brings us to uh, the Lord's table. So if you would take out your elements. The time that we celebrated the Lord's table is is when we're reminding ourselves of exactly that thing, that no longer are we called to have faith in something that's going to happen. We're not just called to have faith in this one, this Son of Man, who will come someday, and I don't understand a lot about it, and, and, and what's it going to be like? We're called to faith looking back at what Jesus Christ has done. That in fulfillment of that very promise that God made... Even back in Genesis chapter 3, God sent forth His Son, His only Son, who was born of a virgin, who was born as a little baby boy, who became human, took on flesh, whose life was a life of obedience in place of my life of disobedience, my life that has dishonored God time and time again. Yet Jesus' life was honoring to God. He was obedient to God and to God's law all the way through. The the warping that comes in in Genesis 3 did not show itself in Jesus at all. He was free from sin, free from guilt. And yet, he did battle with that serpent. And he was bruised horribly on the heel. When he went to the cross and he actually gave up his very life to suffer the penalty for my sin, for your sin, To take it upon himself and see it be executed in him all the way to the point of death. And then God showed his approval by raising him from the dead. Showed that it was a a, a terrible blow. It was a terrible bruise to that heel. But it was only to the heel. And God gave him life. He was raised from the dead. And that serpent was crushed. And thus our guilt has been dealt with in Jesus. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper. We come to what we have here. This is a celebration that Christians uh, do. It's for those who have realized their own need, their own guilt right alongside Adam and Eve. Those who have realized that apart from Christ, I would bear that penalty in my own body. And I would die eternally. But Jesus, Jesus paid that. And did so for me. And so if, if you're not a Christian, please come and ask me uh, or uh, really anyone else here um, questions so that you can know what it means to know Christ, know what it means to have forgiveness. But my, my encouragement for you is look to Him. Trust in Him and the price that He has paid. And so Christian, as we're about to take this, I would 
encourage us to take just a, just a few moments of confession of our own sin. Confession of our need for Jesus. That not only did I need Him once upon a time, I need Him now. I still have sin that I can confess. And when I do that, I'm reminded of the, the glory of the gift of Jesus Himself for us. The forgiveness that I have in Him and that He paid for that sin also. And so let's spend a moment of confession of our own sin uh, silently and, and our need for Jesus' rege- redemption and in rejoicing in the redemption we have in Him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have sin, not just in the deep past before we came to know You, but if we're honest, we see evidence of it even now. More than enough evidence to convince us that we still need Jesus, and my only hope is Him and what He has done. Thank You for the forgiveness that we have in Christ by faith in Him that our sin is done away with. The righteousness of Christ is credited to my account in its place. And so I have peace with you. And so does everyone who has faith in Christ. Father, we rejoice in this salvation that we have. We rejoice in this redemption. We rejoice in the fact that that the seed of the woman, Jesus himself, terribly bruised his heel but crushed the head of his enemy, gaining victory for us. First, we come to the bread. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Father, we rejoice that we get to hold in our hand this representation, this powerful reminder, this evidence of Jesus' own sacrifice for us in giving His life in our place, giving up His own body to redeem us. We rejoice in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, His payment for our sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. Paul continues, In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hand the cup. Pointing us to Jesus' own blood spilt for us. 
where he established, ratified the new covenant in his own blood, by his own sacrifice, so that we who are sinners, by faith in Christ, receive his righteousness and receive forgiveness of our own sins as he has paid for them. That in this cup that points us to the blood of Christ, we are reminded of the fact that he accomplished his work on the cross to redeem sinners like us. And as we partake of this cup, we rejoice and praise you for Jesus. We celebrate this new life that we have because of his obedience, because of his death on the cross, because of his gift to us. We pray in his name. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul continues, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And uh, after I'm done praying, a couple things I want to remind you of. First of all, there will be a family up front who would love to pray with you. If you have questions, if you have needs, if you need to be prayed for, please come pray with them. They love to do that. Secondly, this is the Sunday of the month where we take the benevolence offering, which helps out those who are in financial need. So you can do that in the box in the back or there's a plate in the foyer. And thirdly, if you're a little one who filled out your blast zone, you have opportunity to come over here and and talk about what you have learned. I want to read for us uh, just a couple of verses of Paul in Colossians chapter 1. And after that, we will be dismissed. Paul says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And may the head of the church bless you as you go forth in this week. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in what we have learned today and your design for us. We rejoice in the redemption that we have in Jesus because we have not acted according to your design for us. We rejoice in the fact that we get to have peace with you because of what he has done. We pray that you would take these words that we've heard, this passage that we've looked at from your word, that you would minister to us even going forth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.